0: book two chapter twenty one of the age of innocence by edith wharton this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox the small bright lawn stretched away smoothly to the big bright sea the turf was hemmed with an edge of scarlet uranium and coleus and cast iron vases painted in chocolate colour, standing at intervals along the winding path that led to the sea, looped their garlands of petunia and ivy-geranium above the neatly raked gravel. Halfway between the edge of the cliff and the square wooden house, which was also chocolate coloured, but with the tin roof of the veranda striped in yellow and brown to represent an awning, two large targets had been placed against the background of shrubbery on the other side of the lawn facing the targets was pitched a real tent with benches and garden seats about it a number of ladies in summer dresses and gentlemen in grey frock coats and tall hats stood on the lawn or sat upon the benches and every now and then a slender girl in starched muslin would step from the tent bow in hand and speed her shaft at one of the targets while the spectators interrupted their talk to watch the result newland archer standing on the veranda of the house looked curiously down upon this scene on each side of the shiny painted steps was a large blue china flower pot on a bright yellow china stand a spiky green plant filled each pot and below the veranda ran a wide border of blue hydrangeas edged with more red geranium behind him the french windows of the drawing-rooms through which he had passed gave glimpses between swaying lace curtains of glassy parquet floors islanded with chins poofs dwarf armchairs and velvet tables covered with trifles in silver the newport archery club always held its august meeting at the beauforts the sport which had hitherto known no rival but croquet was beginning to be discarded in favour of lawn tennis but the latter game was still considered too rough and inelegant for social occasions and as an opportunity to show off pretty dresses and graceful attitudes the bow and arrow held their own archer looked down with wonder at the familiar spectacle it surprised him that life should be going on in the old way when his own reactions to it had so completely changed It was Newport that had first brought home to him the extent of the change. In New York, during the previous winter, after he and May had settled down in the new greenish-yellow house with the bow-window and the Pompeian vestibule, he had dropped back with relief into the old routine of the office, and the renewal of his daily activity had served as a link with his former self. Then there had been the pleasurable excitement of choosing a showy gray stepper for May's brougham the Wallams had given the carriage and the abiding occupation and interest of arranging his new library which in spite of family doubts and disapprovals had been carried out as he had dreamed with a dark embossed paper Eastlake bookcases and sincere armchairs and tables at the sentry he had found windset again and at the knickerbocker the fashionable young men of his own set and what with the hours dedicated to the law and those given to dining out or entertaining friends at home with an occasional evening at the opera or the play the life he was living had still seemed a fairly real and inevitable sort of business but newport represented the escape from duty into an atmosphere of unmitigated holiday-making Archer had tried to persuade May to spend the summer on a remote island off the coast of Maine, called, appropriately enough, Mount Desert, where a few hardy Bostonians and Philadelphians were camping in native cottages, and whence came reports of enchanting scenery and a wild, almost trapper-like existence amid woods and waters. But the Wallens always went to Newport, where they owned one of the square boxes on the cliffs, and their son-in-law could adduce no good reason why he and may should not join them there as mrs Welland rather tartly pointed out it was hardly worth while for may to have worn herself out trying on summer clothes in paris if she was not to be allowed to wear them and this argument was of a kind to which archer had as yet found no answer may herself could not understand his obscure reluctance to fall in with so reasonable and pleasant a way of spending the summer She reminded him that he had always liked Newport in his bachelor days, and as this was indisputable he could only profess that he was sure he was going to like it better than ever now that they were going to be there together. But as he stood on the Beaufort veranda and looked out on the brightly peopled lawn it came home to him with a shiver that he was not going to like it at all. It was not May's fault, poor dear if now and then during their travels they had fallen slightly out of step harmony had been restored by their return to the conditions she was used to he had always foreseen that she would not disappoint him and he had been right he had married as most young men did because he had met a perfectly charming girl at the moment when a series of rather aimless sentimental adventures were ending in premature disgust "'and she had represented peace, "'stability, comradeship, "'and the steadying sense "'of an unescapable duty. "'He could not say "'that he had been mistaken "'in his choice, "'for she had fulfilled "'all that he had expected. "'It was undoubtedly gratifying "'to be the husband "'of one of the handsomest "'and most popular "'young married women "'in New York, "'especially when she was also "'one of the sweetest-tempered "'and most reasonable of wives.' An archer had never been insensible to such advantages. As for the momentary madness which had fallen upon him on the eve of his marriage, he had trained himself to regard it as the last of his discarded experiments. The idea that he could ever, in his senses, have dreamed of marrying the Countess Olenska had become almost unsinkable, and she remained in his memory simply as the most plaintive and poignant in a line of ghosts but all of these abstractions and illuminations made of his mind a rather empty and echoing place and he supposed that was one of the reasons why the busy animated people on the beaufort lawn shocked him as if they had been children playing in a graveyard he heard a murmur of skirts beside him and the Marchioness Manson fluttered out of the drawing-room window as usual she was extraordinarily festooned and bedizened with a limp leghorn hat anchored to her head by many windings of faded gauze and a little black velvet parasol on a carved ivory handle absurdly balanced on her much larger hat-brim
1: my dear newland i had no idea that you and may had arrived you yourself came only yesterday you say ah business business professional duties i understand many husbands i know find it impossible to join their wives here except for the week
0: She cocked her head on one side and languished at him through screwed-up eyes.
1: But marriage is one long sacrifice, as I used often to remind my Ellen.
0: Archer's heart stopped with a queer jerk which it had given once before, and which seemed suddenly to slam a door between himself and the outer world. But this break of continuity must have been of the briefest, for he presently heard Medora answering a question he had apparently found voice to put
1: no i am not staying here but with the blankers in their delicious solitude at portsmouth beaufort was kind enough to send his famous trotters for me this morning so that i might have at least a glimpse of one of regina's garden parties but this evening i go back to rural life the blankers dear original beings have hired a primitive old farmhouse at portsmouth where they gather about them representative people
0: she drooped slightly beneath her protecting brim and added with a faint blush
1: this week dr agathon carver is holding a series of inner thought meetings there a contrast indeed to this gay scene of worldly pleasure but then i have always lived on contrasts to me the only death is monotony i always say to ellen beware of monotony it's the mother of all the deadly sins but my poor child is going through a phase of exaltation of abhorrence of the world "'You know, I suppose that she has declined all invitations to stay at Newport, "'even with her grandmother Mingott. "'I could hardly persuade her to come with me to the Blankers, if you will believe it. "'The life she leads is morbid, unnatural. "'Ah, if she had only listened to me when it was still possible, when the door was still open. "'But shall we go down and watch this absorbing match? "'I hear your May is one of the competitors.'
0: Strolling toward them from the tent, Beaufort advanced over the lawn, tall, heavy, too tightly buttoned in a London frock-coat, with one of his own orchids in its buttonhole. Archer, who had not seen him for two or three months, was struck by the change in his appearance. In the hot summer light his floridness seemed heavy and bloated, and but for his erect, square-shouldered walk he would have looked like an overfed and overdressed old man. There were all sorts of rumours afloat about Beaufort. In the spring he had gone off on a long cruise to the West Indies in his new steam-yacht, and it was reported that, at various points where he had touched, a lady resembling Miss Fanny Ring had been seen in his company. The steam-yacht, built in the Clyde and fitted with tiled bathrooms and other unheard-of luxuries, was said to have cost him half a million. And the pearl necklace, which he had presented to his wife on his return, was as magnificent as such expiatory offerings are apt to be. Beaufort's fortune was substantially enough to stand the strain, and yet the disquieting rumours persisted not only in Fifth Avenue but in Wall Street. Some people said he had speculated unfortunately in railways, others that he was being bled by one of the most insatiable members of her profession and to every report of threatened insolvency, Beaufort replied by a fresh extravagance, the building of a new row of orchid-houses, the purchase of a new string of race-horses, or the addition of a new maisonnier or a chabonel in his picture-gallery. He advanced toward the Marchioness and Newland with his usual half-sneering smile.
2: "Hello, Medora! Did the trotters do their business? Forty minutes, eh?' Well, that's not so bad, considering your nerves had to be spared.
0: He shook hands with Archer, and then, turning back with them, placed himself on Mrs. Manson's other side, and said in a low voice a few words which their companion did not catch. The Marchioness replied by one of her queer foreign jerks, and a
1: Que voulez-vous?
0: which deepened Beaufort's frown. But he produced a good semblance of a congratulatory smile as he glanced at Archer to say,
2: "You know May's going to carry off the first prize.
1: Ah, uh, then it remains in the family.
0: Medora rippled, and at that moment they reached the tent, and Mrs. Beaufort met them in a girlish cloud of mauve muslin and floating veils. May Welland was just coming out of the tent in her white dress with a pale green ribbon about the waist and a wreath of ivy on her hat. She had the same Diana-like aloofness as when she had entered the Beaufort ballroom on the night of her engagement. In the interval, not a thought seemed to have passed behind her eyes or a feeling through her heart, and though her husband knew that she had the capacity for both, he marvelled afresh at the way in which experience dropped away from her. She had her bow and arrow in her hand, and placing herself on the chalk-mark traced on the turf, she lifted the bow to her shoulder and took aim. The attitude was so full of a classic grace that a murmur of appreciation followed her appearance, and Archer felt the glow of proprietorship that so often cheated him into momentary well-being. Her rivals, Mrs. Reggie Chivers, the Merry Girls, and diverse Rosy Thorley, Dagonets, and Mingotts stood behind her in a lovely anxious group, brown heads and golden bent above the scores, and pale muslins and flower-wreathed hats mingled in a tender rainbow. All were young and pretty, and bathed in summer bloom, but not one had the nymph-like ease of his wife when, with tense muscles and a happy frown, she bent her soul upon some feet of strength.
2: "'Gad!'
0: Archer heard Lawrence Lufford say.
2: "'Not one of the lot holds the bow, as she does,'
0: and Beaufort retorted.
2: "'Yes, but that's the only kind of target she'll ever hit.'
0: Archer felt irrationally angry. His host's contemptuous tribute to May's niceness was just what a husband should have wished to hear said of his wife. The fact that a coarse-minded man found her lacking in attraction was simply another proof of her quality.' Yet the words sent a faint shiver through his heart. What if niceness carried to that supreme degree were only a negation? The curtain dropped before an emptiness. As he looked at May, returning flushed and calm from her final bull's-eye, he had the feeling that he had never yet lifted that curtain. She took the congratulations of her rivals and of the rest of the company with the simplicity that was her crowning grace. No one could ever be jealous of her triumphs, because she managed to give the feeling that she would have been just as serene if she had missed them. But when her eyes met her husband's, her face glowed with the pleasure she saw in his. Mrs. Welland's basket-work pony-carriage was waiting for them, and they drove off among the dispersing carriages, May handling the reins and Archer sitting at her side the afternoon sunlight still lingered upon the bright lawns and shrubberies and up and down bellevue avenue rolled a double line of victorias dog-carts landaus and vis-a-vis carrying well-dressed ladies and gentlemen away from the beaufort garden party or homeward from their daily afternoon turn along the ocean drive shall we go see granny may suddenly proposed i should like to tell her myself that i've won the prize there's lots of time before dinner archer acquiesced and she turned the ponies down narangaset avenue crossed spring street and drove out toward the rocky moorland beyond in this unfashionable region catherine the great always indifferent to precedent and thrifty of purse had built herself in her youth a many-peaked and cross-beamed cottage orn on a bit of cheap land overlooking the bay here in a thicket of stunted oaks her verandahs spread themselves above the island dotted waters a winding drive led up between iron stags and blue glass balls embedded in mounds of geraniums to a front door of highly varnished walnut under a striped veranda roof and behind it ran a narrow hall with a black and yellow star patterned parquet floor upon which opened four small square rooms with heavy flock-papers under ceilings on which an Italian house-painter had lavished all the divinities of Olympus. One of these rooms had been turned into a bedroom by Mrs. Mingott when the burden of flesh descended on her, and in the adjoining one she spent her days, enthroned in a large armchair between the open door and window, and perpetually waving a palm-leaf fan which the prodigious projection of her bosom kept so far from the rest of her person that the air it set in motion stirred only the fringe of the antimacassars on the chair arms since she had been the means of hastening his marriage old catherine had shown to archer the cordiality which a service rendered excites toward the person served she was persuaded that irrepressible passion was the cause of his impatience and being an ardent admirer of impulsiveness when it did not lead to the spending of money she always received him with a genial twinkle of complicity and a play of allusion to which may seemed fortunately impervious she examined and appraised with much interest the diamond-tipped arrow which had been pinned on may's bosom at the conclusion of the match remarking that in her day a filigree brooch would have been thought enough but that there was no denying that Beaufort did things handsomely.
2: "'Quite an heirloom, in fact, my dear,'
0: the old lady chuckled.
2: "'You must leave it in fee to your eldest girl.'
0: She pinched May's white arm and watched the colour flood her face.
2: "'Well, well, what have I said to make you shake out the red flag? Ain't there going to be any daughters? Only boys, eh?' oh good gracious look at her blushing again all over her blushes what can't i say that either mercy me when my children beg me to have all those gods and goddesses painted out overhead i always say i'm too thankful to have somebody about me that nothing can shock
0: archer burst into a laugh and may echoed it crimson to the eyes
2: well now, tell me all about the party, please, my dears, for I shall never get a straight word about it out of that silly Medora.
0: The ancestress continued, and, as May exclaimed, Cousin Medora but I thought she was going back to Portsmouth. She answered placidly.
2: So she is, but she's got to come here first to pick up Ellen. Oh, you didn't know Ellen had come to spend the day with me. Such falderall, her not coming from the summer but i gave up arguing with young people about fifty years ago
0: ellen ellen she cried in her shrill old voice trying to bend forward far enough to catch a glimpse of the lawn beyond the veranda there was no answer and mrs mingott rapped impatiently with her stick on the shiny floor a mulatto maid servant in a bright turban replying to the summons informed her mistress that she had seen miss ellen going down the path to the shore and mrs mingott turned to archer run down and fetch her like a good grandson this pretty lady will describe the party to me she said and archer stood up as if in a dream he had heard the countess olenska's name pronounced often enough during the year and a half since they had last met and was even familiar with the main incidents of her life in the interval he knew that she had spent the previous summer at newport where she appeared to have gone a great deal into society, but that in the autumn she had suddenly sublet the
1: perfect house,
0: which Beaufort had been at such pains to find for her, and decided to establish herself in Washington. There, during the winter, he had heard of her, as one always hears of pretty women in Washington, as shining in the brilliant diplomatic society that was supposed to make up for the social shortcomings of the administration. He had listened to these accounts, and to various contradictory reports on her appearance, her conversation, her point of view, and her choice of friends, with a detachment with which one listens to reminiscences of someone long since dead. Not till Medora suddenly spoke her name at the archery match had Ellen Olenska become a living presence to him again. The marchioness's foolish lisp had called up a vision of the little firelit drawing-room and the sound of the carriage-wheels returning down the deserted street. He thought of a story he had read of some peasant children in Tuscany lighting a bunch of straw in a wayside cavern and revealing old silent images in their painted tomb. The way to the shore descended from the bank on which the house was perched to a walk above the water planted with weeping willows through their veil Archer caught the glint of the lime rock with its whitewashed turret and the tiny house in which the heroic lighthouse keeper Ida Lewis was living her last venerable years beyond it lay the flat reaches and ugly government chimneys of Goat Island the bay spreading northward, and a shimmer of gold to Prudence Island, with its low growth of oaks, and the shores of Conanicut faint in the sunset haze. From the willow walk projected a slight wooden pier, ending in a sort of pagoda-like summer house, and in the pagoda a lady stood, leaning against the rail, her back to the shore. Archer stopped at the sight as if he had waked from sleep the vision of the past was a dream and the reality was what awaited him in the house on the bank overhead was mrs welland's pony carriage circling round and around the oval at the door was may sitting under the shameless olympians and glowing with secret hopes was the welland villa at the far end of bellevue avenue and mr welland already dressed for dinner and pacing the drawing-room floor watch in hand with dyspeptic impatience for it was one of the houses in which one always knew exactly what is happening at a given hour.
2: "'What am I, a son-in-law?'
0: Archer thought. The figure at the end of the pier had not moved. For a long moment the young man stood halfway down the bank, gazing at the bay furrowed with the coming and going of sailboats, yacht-launches, fishing-crafts and the trailing black coal-barges hauled by noisy tugs. The lady in the summer house seemed to be held by the same sight. Beyond the grey bastions of Fort Adams, a long-drawn sunset was splintering up into a thousand fires, and the radiance caught the sail of a catboat as it beat out through the channel between the lime rock and the shore. Archer, as he watched, remembered the scene in the chagrown, and Montague lifting Ada Dyer's ribbon to his lips without her knowing that he was in the room
2: she doesn't know she hasn't guessed shouldn't i know if she came up behind me i wonder
0: he mused and suddenly he said to himself
2: if she doesn't turn before that sail crosses the lime rock light i'll go back
0: the boat was gliding out on the receding tide it slid before the lime rock blotted out ida lewis's little house "'and passed across the turret in which the light was hung. "'Archer waited till a wide space of water sparkled between the last reef of the island "'and the stern of the boat, but still the figure in the summer-house did not move. "'He turned and walked up the hill. "'I'm sorry you didn't find Ellen. "'I should have liked to see her again,' May said as they drove home through the dusk. "'But perhaps she wouldn't have cared.' She seems so changed. Changed? Echoed her husband in a colorless voice, his eyes fixed on the pony's twitching ears. So indifferent to her friends, I mean. Giving up New York and her house, and spending
2: her time with such queer people. Fancy how hideously uncomfortable she must be at the blinkers. She says she does it to keep Cousin Medora out of mischief, to prevent her
0: marrying dreadful people, but I sometimes think we've always bored her. Archer made no answer, and she continued, with a tinge of hardness that he had never before noticed in her frank, fresh voice. "'After all, I wonder if she wouldn't be happier with her husband.' He burst into a laugh.
2: "'Sanctus
0: he exclaimed, and as she turned a puzzled frown on him, he added,
2: "'I don't think I ever heard you say a cruel thing before.'
0: "'Cruel?'
2: "'Well, watching the contortions of the damned is supposed to be a favourite sport of the angels, but I believe even they don't think people happier in hell.'
0: "'It's a pity she ever married a then,' said May, in the placid tone with which her mother met Mr. Wellens's vagaries, and Archer felt himself gently relegated to the category of unreasonable husbands. They drove down Bellevue Avenue and turned in between the chamfered wooden gate posts surmounted by cast-iron lamps which marked the approach to the Welland villa lights were already shining through its windows an archer as the carriage stopped caught a glimpse of his father-in-law exactly as he had pictured him pacing the drawing-room watch in hand and wearing a pained expression that he had long since found to be much more efficacious than anger The young man, as he followed his wife into the hall, was conscious of a curious reversal of mood. There was something about the luxury of the Welland house and the density of the Welland atmosphere so charged with minute observances and exactions that always stole into his system like a narcotic. The heavy carpets, the watchful servants, the perpetually reminding tick of disciplined clocks— The perpetually renewed stack of cards and invitations on the hall-table, the whole chain of tyrannical trifles binding one hour to the next, and each member of the household to all the others, made any less systematized and affluent existence seem unreal and precarious. But now it was the Welland house and the life he was expected to lead in it that had become unreal and irrelevant, and the brief scene on the shore— when he had stood irresolute halfway down the bank, was as close to him as the blood in his veins. All night he lay awake in the big chins bedroom at May's side, watching the moonlight slant along the carpet, and thinking of Ellen Olenska driving home across the gleaming beaches behind Beaufort's trotters. End of Book Two, Chapter 21 of The Age of Innocence